Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our worship service this morning. I do want to welcome Kevin and Bonnie and Kevin Neustetter. You guys made your trips back from Bible school, and good to see you here again for the Christmas season. And also other guests that are here, thank you for coming. So as we enter into this season, this Christmas season, we are bombarded often with materialism and all the things that the world wants us to partake in. And to a degree, we enjoy some of those things with our children and our family and and friends. Um, But it's also a time where often we are hit with um, struggles. It's a hard time for many people, specifically for that reason. In this morning's text, we continue on in 1 Peter, and we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. And I've entitled the message for this morning, Joy in the Midst of Trials. So we're just continuing on in the book of 1 Peter. Let's start with looking at verse 3. Our text will be verse 6 to 9, but we'll read starting from verse 3. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we've gone through the introduction. We've seen um, Peter's writing to the elect exiles that are dispersed in Pontus Galatia, and he points them, again, as a reminder to the Gospel. He points them to their... um, salvation through Jesus Christ and according to his great mercy has caused them to be born again as we saw last time to a living hope an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading and it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed this is our living hope this is our inheritance this salvation that is yet to be revealed our final glorification when we enter into glory into the presence of our savior for eternity that is our hope that is what we set our eyes on and that's what peter is pointing the church to to look to this living hope as their foundation as their rock that they they look at even though now they are faced with trials, grieving trials of various kinds. Juan Sanchez, in his commentary, introduces this 
uh, portion of Scripture in this way. He says, suffering will come. It is an inevitability for all who live in this imperfect world and particularly for all who profess faith in Christ in this fallen world. How will you respond when it comes? I'm sure we all hope that we would respond like those saints in Fox's Book of Martyrs. With acceptance, courage, conviction. But I wonder if our comfortable lives and our comfortable surroundings may lead us to respond differently. I wonder if our first response might be surprise. We have rights after all. Maybe we'll become angry and fight back. Either in our prayers or with our words or through legal processes. Perhaps we will grow hopeless in our circumstances and fall into the pit of despair. It could be that we think that if we simply ignore pain and problems, they will just go away. Because it has no future hope, the world has every reason to respond in this way that we've just um, outlined. However, for those of us who have a living hope through Jesus' resurrection, we cannot respond in this way. So how should we respond then when suffering arrives? And in verses 6 to 9, Peter equips us to respond to the unjust sufferings with inexpressible joy. I've broken up these four verses in this way. In verse 6, the nature of trials. In verse 7, the refining of faith. Verse 8, love for and faith in Jesus in the midst of trials. And in verse 9, salvation as the outcome of our faith. So Peter starts in verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice. So the first question we face as we start verse 6 is what is this referring to? When we read Scriptures, passages often begin with words or phrases that indicate that what we are about to read hinges on something that we have previously read. Or Some common examples when we see a passage or a verse start with the word, therefore. Well, then we know it's referring back to something else. And what we're about to read hinges on what we just read. Other passages or, or verses start with, but. So we see a contrast happening with what had just been said, what had just been taught. And so there's a transition happening. Or as in our text, we see Peter starting with, in this you rejoice. So when he writes that, the reader should understand what this is. In the original Greek, most commentaries that I read say that verses 3 to 12 are one long ongoing sentence. So in this text, it is somewhat easier than in many other places to determine what the antecedent of this is. And when we speak of an antecedent, in biblical hermeneutics, the analogy of antecedent scripture, it refers to that which comes logically or chronologically before. So every time a biblical author quotes or alludes to an earlier text, so in our case, Peter's saying, in this you rejoice. He's alluding to and referencing to an earlier text, something that he has already said. It's either to a text a person, an event, or a teaching, these earlier texts then form the backdrop of what the author is saying. 
And those earlier texts then inform the current meaning and contribute to the text at hand. So we must seek to determine what the antecedent of a text is by further studying the context of the passage we are reading or further evaluating other scripture texts that appear chronologically before yet are referring to the same doctrine, people, or events as the text we are reading. So again, when Peter writes, in this you rejoice, we naturally look back to determine what this is referring to. And in verse 6, he is referring to that which he just wrote in verses 3 to 5 that we read only a few minutes ago. So we have what is considered the antecedent to verse 6. So when Peter says, in this you rejoice, we now know what he is talking about. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And we are being guarded by God's power for a salvation ultimately yet to be revealed. This certain future is the cause of our rejoicing. The word translated as rejoice simply means to be full of joy or overjoyed. We notice in verse 5, it ends by pointing to our salvation again, ready to be revealed at the last time. And so our salvation should then move us to praise God and to feel this great and abundant joy. To be overjoyed and filled with joy by the promise of our salvation yet to be revealed in the last time. And so again, Peter is taking our focus and he's pointing it to the promise of this inheritance, to the eternal promises of Christ and this salvation, and he's getting us to focus on that, though now we are grieved by various trials. So it takes our focus off of our particular circumstances. It takes it off of the griefs and the trials that we're facing and the suffering that many believers face each and every day, never mind, again, in a season like this, and appoints us to our inheritance, to our living hope. Because we have a future that will be filled with eternal bliss, a joy unspeakable, and this is a reason for rejoicing. Even, as Peter says in verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Daniel Doriani in his commentary notes that Peter describes our trials in five ways from in verses 6 and 7. So if we look at the nature of our trials, five ways. First, when compared to eternity, they are brief in duration. We see in verse 6, he says, though now for a little while. Our trials are brief. Second, they are varied in form. Peter says you have been grieved by various trials. This isn't just referring to one hardship, one struggle, one suffering, one cause of grief. We have been grieved by various trials. Third, they have a kind of necessity. As he says, if necessary. Fourth, suffering proves that our faith is real. Verse 7, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire. And fifth, suffering will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Also verse 7. 
Because suffering has a limit and a purpose. It is temporary and it has a purpose. We can still rejoice in it. We aren't overcome by our temporary circumstances. We have to be honest, I think, and admit that joy is probably not the first response we usually think of when considering facing suffering. Yet we see it as a consistent New Testament theme. Let's turn to Matthew for a second. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. You may know where we're going already. But in Matthew chapter 5, we have the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Matthew writes, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The same as Peter is doing in his epistle, Matthew, in his gospel, points to our eternal hope in glory as means to endure our temporary affliction. Whenever we may suffer as Christians, we are to remember that we are safe in God's grace. For He chose us before the world's creation. He was faithful to grant us new birth, which results in this living hope and a future inheritance that we see in verses 3-5 to of 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the grace of God, and in this we rejoice, no matter what our current circumstances may be. As we have seen in our previous sermons introducing this epistle, suffering and affliction are central theme to the whole letter. And Peter writes this to the church as a consolation and comfort, reminding his readers of the future hope that awaits them. He mentions that our grief, sorry, he mentions that our trials are temporary and ultimately they have a greater purpose. This does not diminish our grief. It simply reminds us that we have an eternal hope to look forward to in the middle of our temporary afflictions. We move into verse 7. So we see now the source of our rejoicing. Our hope, our living hope, inheritance and salvation. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials. And verse 7 now gives us the purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the next point, refining of faith. The second question we then ask, what is the purpose of our trials? What is the purpose of our trials? Peter writes that we are to rejoice in our various kinds of trials so that, verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trials in our lives test our faith. They prove the genuineness of our faith which is more precious than gold that perishes. Throughout the history of the world, 
gold has been considered to be a precious commodity of great value. Our faith, Peter says, is more precious than gold. Because gold too, like all other material things, perishes. It diminishes. Our faith has eternal implications and it does not fade due to the passing of time or circumstance. It is placed in the eternal promises of God and we are being guarded, as he says in verse 5, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So like gold, our faith too is tested by fire. Literal fire tests gold and other precious metals. And here Peter has used that as a metaphor to show us how our trials test our faith and prove our faith. So metaphorical fire, trials, persecution, sufferings, griefs, these things test our faith the same as fire tests gold. The psalmist writes in Psalm 66 verse 10, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. Proverbs 17, verse 3. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Very familiar verse, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So here we see James employing the same language as Peter. Count it all joy, my brothers. Rejoice, Peter says, in this. Though we are grieved by trials of various kinds, James uses the same language. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. One commentator said, Just as men used fire to distinguish true gold from the counterfeit and allied or imperfect metals, so God uses trials to distinguish genuine faith from superficial profession. So again, just as gold was a most precious metal to the ancient people, faith has a much greater value. Because like every other created thing, Gold, too, will perish, but our faith is imperishable, for God is the one who preserves it in us. Christian suffering is the purifying fire through which our faith is tested, tried, and proven. Precious metals, like gold, are put through the fire to remove impurities, and even then, gold does not last forever. It is temporary. Eventually, it perishes. A faith that has been tested and purified by the fire of trials is more precious because it is authentic and it will be found, verse 7, to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This praise, honor, and glory is that which the Christian receives as the outcome of our faith. If we stay in 1 Peter chapter 1 and just jump to verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, back in verse 7 of our text, Peter says that we may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I believe he is tying praise, glory, and honor together with the statement of this grace that will be brought to us. And so Peter uses this word grace to describe that which will be revealed to us. And we know that God's grace is His unmerited favor for us. Therefore, the praise, honor, and glory in verse 7 um, that our faith results in is because of the grace of God. It is His favor bestowed upon us. And as we saw earlier in James chapter 1, 2 to 4, suffering promotes endurance and perfection of character. Paul also reiterates this. Actually, let's go to Romans for one minute here. Romans chapter 5. Paul also states this. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His grace, in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So there is great value in suffering for the Christian. Too often we seek to avoid all hardship, or when we find ourselves in the midst of them, we seek to be freed from whatever may have befallen us. Rather, we should look to our eternal promises as the means to endure through trials so that the end may be accomplished. Peter says later in his epistle in chapter 4, in verse, starting in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Again, we should look to our eternal promises as a means to endure through these trials so that the end may be accomplished. But we can also find great encouragement and hope in the fact that we do not suffer alone. For Christ also suffered, and He provided an example for us. In chapter 2 of First Peter, verse 21-25 to 25 reads, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, 
so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. We do not suffer alone. Christ, our Savior, God become man, also suffered, and he set an example for us. As we faithfully endure through various trials, we come to see that our faith is genuine. And when Christ seems to be all we have, we cling to him we come to see that we know that He really is all we need. Such enduring faith will be rewarded when Christ is revealed. Therefore, we can now rejoice whenever we face trials of various kinds. Our faith is valuable not only to us, but to God who wants to refine it. So again, just as gold is refined by fire, by a crucible that burns away the impurities of the metal, so the crucible of suffering and affliction refines our faith, which Peter says is much more valuable and more precious than gold. Verse 8 brings us to our next point a love for and a faith in Jesus in the midst of our trials. Peter writes in verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter is moved by the fact that his readers who have not seen Jesus have a deep love for Him and find their joy in Him. Jesus Himself says in John chapter 20, He says, Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. At the end of verse 7, Peter mentions again Jesus' future coming. And then he turns to Jesus' current absence in the text. And again here in verse 8, Peter addresses, as different commentator says, the discrepancy between the present experience of suffering and the anticipated future glory. So again, he's building a contrast between the temporary affliction and suffering of the here and now by looking at our future anticipated glory. And Peter saw Jesus with his own eyes. Peter touched him with his own hands, but his readers had not done so. Notice how Peter transitions in verse 8 when he says, in verse 3 he speaks of, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again. He is including himself with his hearers, with the readers of this epistle, with the church. And in verse 8 he changes and he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Why is he doing this? Because that verse does not apply to him. Peter saw the risen Christ. Peter spoke with him. He touched him. He saw him. 
So again, Peter saw Jesus with his own eyes. He touched him with his own hands. But his readers have not done so. And we will not do so until the day again that Jesus is revealed. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We have the example of Thomas in the Gospel of John chapter 20. Let's read John chapter 20 and from verse 24 to 29. So we have this example of Thomas and we see how Thomas struggled to believe when his friends told him that they had seen the Lord because he had not seen Jesus after his resurrection. He was struggling to take his friend's testimony on this. John writes in chapter 20, verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the door was locked, the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So in John chapter 20, verse 25, Thomas had rejoined the other disciples, and they told him, We have seen the Lord. Thomas refused to believe them, but rather responded, Unless I see his hands with the mark of the nails and place my finger on the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Just over a week later, eight days, John writes, the disciples were together again and Thomas was with them. Jesus appeared to them again. And then Jesus turns to Thomas and again he says, as we saw in verse 27, put your finger here, see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Notice he's following exactly what Thomas said. Thomas said, unless he places his hands in his hands, touches his scars, places his hand in his side. And Jesus says, follows exactly that pattern. Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The scripture does not tell us if Thomas actually touched Jesus or not. But he saw him and he responded in verse 28, My Lord and my God. Knowing that future Christians would not see him in the flesh, Jesus told Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus looked past Thomas and saw us. Jesus knew the day would come where all who would believe in him for eternal life would not have seen him in the flesh. Doriani again in his commentary states, Thomas had enough reason to believe. 
He had the testimony of his trusted friends, and yet he refused it. The Lord graciously granted Thomas the evidence that he wrongly demanded. Still, the Lord corrected him when he said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus speaks this blessing to us as we trust the testimony of the apostles, yield to the Spirit's persuasion, and believe. Blessed are we who have believed and have not seen Him in the flesh. Our love for and belief in Jesus results in a joy, as Peter says in verse 8 again of our text, in a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter's readers had not seen Jesus during his earthly life. Although Peter had, yet they were giving him the the responsive love of their hearts in fellowship. Because this joy has its origin in God and not in man, it is inexpressible. It defies human, perfect human expression. We cannot perfectly express this joy that we find in this living hope. We cannot express it externally. And this joy, again, it is found in God. It is found in this inheritance and His promises. It is not found in us. It is not found in what we can do. It is of God. Therefore, Peter says, it is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is the joy that we can have through this time of trial. And in verse 9, our fourth point, salvation as the outcome of faith. Peter's readers and us do not see Jesus as Peter did, and we will do one day. When our final salvation comes and we are glorified and in the presence of our Lord, we will see Him in the flesh. But we know Him. And because of that, we love Him. And we trust Him. And so, we can again rejoice with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And as we do this, we know that our faith, in verse 9, our faith results in the obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. In what or whom are you placing your joy? If we seek to place our joy in the things of this world, we will be riding an emotional roller coaster. Peter calls you to root your joy in the great salvation that God has granted to you in Christ and the living hope of a future inheritance with Him. This is the joy that no circumstances or loss or trial or suffering can take from you. With this abundant joy, we can face Christian suffering, knowing that God is using these trials to prepare us to obtain our future salvation. Suffering has taken nothing that you need, because Christ is who you need. As we endure faithfully, we are encouraged that our faith is real 
And as we keep loving and believing in Jesus through trials, we are encouraged that our faith is authentic. And so in conclusion, what trials are you facing? Or what griefs are you experiencing? We don't have to ignore or belittle these things and pretend that they don't exist. They do. We don't have to ignore them or pretend that they don't bother us. They do. But neither must we despair in these things or be crushed by them. If you have trusted in Christ, then God is at work in your life. And here's the best part. Very familiar passage. Romans chapter 8. I'll just quickly flip there and I'll just read the passage right away. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. God is at work in our life, and our suffering and our griefs are not wasted. They are not without purpose. God has a purpose for them. He uses them to conform us to the image of His Son. What greater reason would we have to find joy? And as he summed up in verse 30, Paul did in verse 30, that ultimately He will also glorify us. There is a great purpose in our suffering, in our griefs. They are not wasted. Keep trusting in Christ. Keep loving Jesus. Remember the living hope that you have. Remember the inheritance that you will enjoy. Look at how God has guarded our faith through trials and know that God is refining our faith in these trials. As we wrap up this section in 1 Peter Verses 3 to 9. Let us remember to keep an eternal perspective through our temporary toils. Keep an eternal perspective looking to Jesus through our temporary afflictions and trials and griefs. Keeping our focus on Him. We've all heard that saying, the light at the end of the tunnel. He is the light at the end of our tunnel of this life. As we journey through this tunnel, it can be dark at times. It can be difficult But Jesus is the light at the end and He is our inheritance. We are joint heirs with Him and we will be glorified together with Him. We find our hope and our joy in that. As we've multiple times said this morning, so in this you rejoice. And let's challenge ourselves With this question, as we're entering again, the Christmas season, we are well into it. Let's challenge ourselves. In what or in whom 
do we seek to find our joy? In what or in whom do we seek to find our joy? Are we doing that in the material aspect of this season? Again, we all partake in it to a degree. But let's remember to keep our focus on the eternal aspect of Christmas, that Christ became man, Jesus incarnate, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, kept the law perfectly, became our perfect sacrifice so that we might be transformed into the image of Him, that we might be glorified together with Him. Let's keep that as the focus of our joy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You again for Your Word. God, I pray that this morning Your Word will reach out and it will help those who have heard it, Lord. And I pray that You will help us to look to You for our joy, to look to You for our hope. And God, again, as we endure this time, this season, I pray, God, that You will be with those families that are finding difficult and finding joy. God, I pray You'll be with my mom and dad. That they too will continue to look to You for their joy. I pray for Brother Tom and Linda and Tom's family as they too are grieving this Christmas, their first Christmas without their father. God, that You would comfort them and they too might look to Your salvation as a source of their joy. God, I pray for the many others who are struggling, who are battling on their own. God, I pray that You would comfort them, that You would point them to Your Word and use Your Word and by Your Spirit, God, to help them to find joy in You, not in our surroundings, not in our circumstances, Lord, but to find our joy in You so that we know it is unshakable, that we know that You are guarding it. God, that we can face these trials and these griefs and these sufferings, knowing that You, God, are accomplishing Your purpose in and through us. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.